Good morning. I was reading some news this week, and I came across an article about a study that was done, Gallup poll, I think 142 countries, 22% of respondents said they were angry. And that is up a couple of percent from the previous year's poll and at an all-time high. And I thought when I was reading that, well, it really does seem to back up something that I've noticed, and perhaps you have as well, depending on your different spheres of of relationships, whether it's talking to people online, uh, especially. Do you notice people seem to be angry a lot? Just drivers? You're not on social media, are you? (laughs) I think there's a similar theory there. There's this buffer that we create when we're behind the wheel or when we're behind the computer keyboard that does not always bring out the best in us. <laughs> but there is this element that there is, is, is in, in protests in other areas, there seems to be a fair bit of anger. Would you identify as one of the 22%? You see, we've been talking a little bit about how we can not just survive, but how our faith can thrive in a world, in a culture that isn't particularly friendly to our faith. And as we've spent months kind of working our way through the book of 1 Peter, we've talked a lot about culture and the church. And in my mind, as we've talked, I've thought, uh, culture is here, the church is here, and we're talking about how the two intersect and relate with one another and how we thrive in that culture. But I've been thinking mentally about these two, ex- these two things. They're, 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 they're separate from one another. And then as I was thinking about this article, it, it occurred to me, that when I read angry comments like online and different things, some of the worst ones that I read are from Christians. And I don't know if you've experienced this personally, but chances are you've seen it, you've heard it. Like, if, if you get on the right or perhaps wrong topic, uh, for example, politics. <laughs> okay, so there it goes. You start with that, and... and what, what ends up happening is, I know that we, you know, there are different political views and, and parties do things that, that policy-wise that we don't agree with. And if I talked about Justin Trudeau, some of you would be all, well, there. And some, if I talk about you know, Doug Ford, some more people will be upset. And I know a lot of times what we're talking about is policy, but that's not, that's not how our culture often articulates this. It ends up being articulated as an ad hominem kind of attack. And what you get is, oh, that, insert politician name here, is such a blank, or in some cases, blankety blank. That, and, and some of the, 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 the vitriol and, and, and venom that I, I get are from people who are followers of Jesus. So I'm not hearing the, well, I disagree with the government policy on this position because of this rational argument. No, that person is a moron, or a lot worse. Now, Brian mentioned this morning 
about the subtle attacks, right? And this one, I think, falls under that umbrella of subtlety. Here's, here's where I'm thinking. As I was thinking about our culture and our, 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 our faith and the separate of these things, I realized one of the greatest threats that we need to be aware of is the fact that we are actually being influenced by our culture. So when we start to think about surviving, not just surviving, but thriving in a culture that is not friendly towards our faith, we need to recognize we are being influenced by that culture. And this anger thing is just part of it, but I think it illustrates the point well of how we are subtly influenced and we are being conformed to our culture sometimes. And that is very problematic for a follower of Jesus Christ. As we start to think about how culture might influence us, maybe some thoughts are going through your mind right now of how you personally might be affected. And we've talked about different aspects of of, uh, submission over these past uh, several weeks that we've been in this series. Uh, We've talked about submitting to authority uh, in a governmental kind of way through uh, employers within family We talk about submission to authority as Peter has been exhorting us to explore this idea of orderly conduct as we work through this idea of our liberty and our freedom in Jesus, but how that needs to fall in line with the structure of of the government and other systems in order for us to represent Jesus well. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, wrapping up those different exhortations of Peter's. We've uh, made our way to uh, chapter 3. I'll get this right this morning. Chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 Peter. And Peter is wrapping up some of these thoughts. He says in verse 8, finally. Okay? Finally. This is the clue that he's wrapping us up here from some of these previous statements. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Peter is calling us to get our thinking in line. As he's talked to specific groups over the last portions of the letter that we've looked at, now today he's talking to all of us and he's saying, we need to have some consistency in our thinking. We need to be of like mind. And he's not talking about having the mind of the culture, right? He's talking about having us focus on something different. The mind that we need to have. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Pretty straightforward. He's telling us that we need to be sympathetic to one another. If you look at the roots of those words, it, it's, it's very clear, straightforward. I don't think it requires much in the way of explanation to understand what it means to 
be sympathetic or to be empathetic, to care about other people. What's important here is the realization that what we're talking about is not something superficial. We're talking about deeply being interested in other people and having a sympathy, an empathy, a care for them. Being kind-hearted, being loving, right? These are words that are coming from that Greek root, uh, is it philia, right? The idea where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That we love one another, that we are kind and caring, that we are others-focused. And Peter kind of caps this with this idea of being humble. And humility, such a significant part of this. It really gives us the, the foundation for what he's communicating here. Because you have to understand humility in its proper form. And this is something that I was guilty of for years. I am sure I have shared this story in the past because it was so formative for me. I was given a devotional book probably around the time Tracy and I were married. It was a little men's devotional book. I flipped through it, found nothing really compelling, stuck it on a shelf. Few years later, pull it off the shelf, take a look, read this first devotional on the subject of humility, and every word hit me like a brick because I realized at that point what a problem I had with humility. And my flawed thinking was in the uh, view that I thought the opposite of humility was really like arrogance. And I kind of knew that I wasn't an arrogant person as such, so I knew I didn't have a problem with humility because I wasn't arrogant. But that isn't the proper understanding. There, there's a, a fairly well-known quote that's often misattributed to C.S. Lewis. Uh, Rick Warren actually said it in The um, Purpose Driven Life. And it said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often, which, which actually does very, very well summarize a lot of what C.S. Lewis would say about humility if you've ever read his thoughts in Mere Christianity. And that starts to get closer to the mark. But if you want to keep it simple, what you need to understand is the true opposite of humility is selfishness. And I personally have a problem with selfishness. Now, often I will talk about this with people, and they will say, oh, Daryl, you're not selfish. They will look at certain aspects, facets of my life that they're aware of and think, no, you're not a selfish person. I'm like, you don't know me. You don't know my secret heart. I am selfish. I do battle with it every single day. And honestly, if you don't believe me, ask my wife. Because if you pay attention long enough, and some of you have known me long enough, that when I wear thin, if I get tired or stressed, then cracks start to show. And that is what Peter is calling us to turn from. He's saying humility is the opposite of selfishness. What's he saying? Be interested in others more than yourself. Fairly simple and straightforward stuff, right? Peter says, others first. Right? Simple. Everybody got it? 
Others first. Say it with me. Others first. Perfect. We're done. We can go home, right? No. (laughs) Because Peter has this next verse that we need to focus on. Nine, he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. (laughs) To this, you know, we're called, right? I'm like, great. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Repay evil with what? Blessing. Blessing. Okay, so, (laughs) like, the first part in verse 8, easy enough easy enough when we're talking about people that we agree with and people that are like us. Okay, but we get this ramped up a notch now and we're like, no, wait a second. You need to repay evil with blessing. And this ought to be ringing some bells because who is this incredibly reminiscent of? Oh, yeah, Jesus. (laughs) Right? Who lived a life that was others-focused? When Jesus was asked questions about this subject, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say the greatest commandment was? It was to love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul. We're there. All your mind, all your strength. Yeah. And what? Right. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, okay. So then some wisecracker asks, yeah, so who is my neighbor? Uh So Jesus proceeds to tell a story. You can read it for yourself if you want in Luke chapter 10, right? We'll just breeze over it really quick. Man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, very dangerous road, set upon by robbers, beat bloody, robbed of everything, and left for dead. Most of us have heard that story, right? Okay, two likely heroes, priest, Levite, walk by pass along, right? Who comes along but the lowly, despised Samaritan? I can't think of an example of somebody that I could name in this culture and context that we live in that could possibly do justice to how badly Jesus was just just nailing this for, for, for his audience. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And to say that this despised Samaritan becomes the hero of the story says the person that you despise, the one who stepped up and cared for the other in extraordinary fashion, that's your neighbor. We ought to be a lot more troubled by that teaching. In... I think it's Matthew 5. Jesus does this thing again where he raises the bar. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the interesting part of that statement is that love your neighbor was actually part of the Old Testament, teaching a commandment to love your neighbor. The and hate your enemy is kind of something that looks like it was inferred. So teachers tacked it on there. Because it makes sense. <laughs> Jesus said, no. The thing that you need to do is to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I believe one of the most dangerous teachings of Jesus in the entirety of Scripture. 
Because now we're being called on to a whole other level. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And this is what Peter is coming back to. Do not repay evil with evil. Repay evil with blessing. And, he, and look at how Jesus lives this out in every example of his life and ministry right up to the point where we just came through Easter and talked about this stuff in great detail. He's hanging on a cross and says, Father, forgive them. Now, I told you, if you pay close enough attention to me, I'm going to get tired a little bit stressed, and I'm going to get grumpy. I get hangry. Hangry. A little hungry, a little... Yeah. Oh, trust me, it's a thing in our house. Somebody's like, go get a cookie. You need, like... Yeah. That's me. Jesus has spent a sleepless night in incredible mental, spiritual, emotional anguish, no sleep, whipped, bloody, beaten, nailed to the cross. And where is his heart? Father, forgive them. I don't have anything to say after that. What, what more can you say? That's what we're being called to. That's what Peter is, is, is saying. We need to not repay evil with evil. We need to repay evil with blessing. And he refers, by the way, interestingly, to Psalm 34. We heard it read earlier today, and, and Mike sang that song that really emphasized part of this. In Psalm 34, interesting again that he refers to David because, remember, as Peter is writing to people who know what it's like to kind of be outsiders, a little alienated in the culture, David becomes an interesting figure in that context because we tend to think of him, right, in terms of his spectacular uh, accomplishments like Goliath or his spectacular failure like Bathsheba. But, you know, in the middle of that, there's some interesting things. Like, remember when, when Samuel was going to anoint the next king of Israel, he was going to find one of the sons of Jesse, right? They lined up all the handsome, tall lads. Where was David? He was an outsider. He was tending sheep somewhere. They didn't even bring him forward at first. And think of the years that he spent running from Saul, fearing for his life. He knew what it was like to be alienated and on the outside. And he is who Peter gravitates towards here as we get into verse uh, 10, right? For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we were to put it simply, God's paying attention. 
And I think that this promise, for those who would see good days, we often think of the eternal hope that we have in Jesus, which is an important part of our perspective. But there's something temporal about this idea. For those who would see good days, we're not talking about eternity. We're talking about in our current lives. I think this is very interesting when you think about focusing on others first. I've been just reading a few articles, things that are coming across in terms of mental health. And do you know how many studies and things there are that suggest that when you focus on others, your mental health improves? Just by focusing on others? And the thing is, is if it were just that simple, we could say, okay, well, let's just form a few volunteer groups here, guys, and go out and take care of some stuff in the community and everything will be great. End of sermon. But there's a little bit more to it when we start to focus on the fact that we are being called not to repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with blessing. When we're talking about those who have wronged us or those that we don't agree with, it gets a lot harder. And the resistance should be fairly natural as we're struggling against our sin nature and the influence of our culture. Think about how radically countercultural this actually is. And you, you're not wrong in saying, but it's hard. Because it is hard. But we have another problem that we sometimes face too, and that's that we just don't want to. I really don't want to forgive that person. Interesting, another example from Jesus is pretty well known, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We are called, commanded to this. It's not optional. But I don't want to. I don't want to give that up. Maybe we've become comfortable with our anger or our, our hurt or wherever it is we're sitting. And I think if you're going to boil all this down, where it comes out ultimately is this question. Do we trust God? That might become the ultimate question. Do I trust him enough to say, God, this is hard. Would you please, God, help me to do this? God, I don't want to do this. Would you change my heart? <laughs> That's dangerous. That is a dangerous prayer. And here's a little piece of evidence of how the Holy Spirit weaves things together this morning. I was listening to Mel was sharing the power from Ephesians, right? Okay. Here's where the sticking point, this is where it really gets tough, people. Here's where we get caught. Okay. It's really hard and I don't do it. So what are, what are we actually saying at this point? Are we actually saying that the power that raised Christ from the dead is not sufficient to overcome my piddly little issue? My desire not to? Is that what we're actually saying? 
Does that hit any of you the same way it hits me? I don't want to do it. It's too hard. That is what we are being called to. And we have the power of the risen, resurrected Christ behind us. I think Arnie was echoing it as well from those verses in 1 Thessalonians. Do we believe it? Are we ready to put that into practice? I, I, I can't tell you necessarily the best way forward for you in this. But I can tell you that there are ways we can tangibly put others first that are, are small steps in the right direction. And honestly, one of them is for us to live in the kind of community that we are being called to live in. Have you considered the opportunity, seriously, of being part of one of our small groups? Of being able to put into practice what we're being exhorted to by Peter's letter here, the idea of putting others first, of living in this type of community, of deepening relationship with one another. Some of you who have been part of the 40 days of prayer and discernment process that we've been through are getting a taste in your groups, in your triad groups, a little taste of that togetherness, praying together. And I know for some of you, are like, that was pretty sweet. I liked it. But we come up against the practical challenge. Well, you want to get involved with a small group? Well, I would, but I'm kind of busy. It's kind of hard to put that into my schedule. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, it's hard. But is, when we're exhorted by Jesus to live this kind of life, these are the hard questions we need to ask ourselves. Am I willing to set aside time from my own busy schedule to put others ahead of myself? And honestly, folks, the answer for me is often the wrong answer. I'm, I'm often too ready to sit in my very comfortable chair and not do anything except relax, do what I want to do. But I know that's not what I'm being called to. That's not what Peter is exhorting us to today. And can you imagine our community here if we were living this out the kind of influence that we would have, not just on, on our, in our, our own community here at Auburn, but, but to those around us to see what it's like to live this type of countercultural life. I just pray, Lord, help us. Help us to pray those dangerous prayers and to make those significant commitments to put others first.